Hello everyone, this is Kim Vopney, and today we will be mapping Kegels on the 15-minute matrix. Welcome to the 15-Minute Matrix. I'm Andrea Nakayama, functional medicine nutritionist and your host. This is the podcast that brings you bite-sized insights and lessons on the clinical relevance of the functional nutrition matrix, the most important tool in functional medicine and functional nutrition. The matrix is so important not only because it invites us to stop and assess, but also because it reminds us of three very important factors in our care, our recommendations, and our outcomes. Everything is connected, we are all unique, and all things matter. Be sure to head over to this episode's show notes at 15minutematrix.com if you'd like to see today's topic mapped on a downloadable matrix to remind you of these critical aspects of care. Today on the 15-Minute Matrix, I'll be speaking with Kim Vopney. Kim Vopney is a self-professed Kegel maven and is known as the Vagina Coach. She is a certified fitness professional who became passionate about spreading information on pelvic health after the birth of her first child. Kim is an author, a passionate speaker, and a women's health educator. Her most recent and best-selling book, Your Pelvic Floor, launched in March 2020. Kim is the founder of Pelvian Wellness Inc., a company offering pelvic health programs, products, and coaching for women in pregnancy, motherhood, and menopause. Kim also certifies other fitness and movement professionals to work with women with core and pelvic floor challenges through her Core Confidence Specialist Certification and Pre-Postnatal Fitness Specialist Certification. Kim, welcome to the 15-Minute Matrix. Thank you so much. Happy to be here. So we're talking about kegels today, and there's so much to explore on the topic, but I'm wondering, Kim, if you can kick things off by just talking about what kegels are. So Dr. Arnold Kegel, Kegel Kegel, tomato, tomato, he essentially created the exercise. It is a voluntary activation and relaxation of the pelvic floor muscles. So the group of muscles that closes off the base of our pelvis. And he was noticing that his female patients after giving birth were having challenges activating and coordinating the contraction and relaxation, or they couldn't necessarily feel it like they used to. So he used a biofeedback device to help them connect with that group of muscles and taught them how to do the pelvic floor sort of activation and relaxation, which is what the pelvic floor muscles should do on their own throughout our day. But things like pregnancy and childbirth can interrupt that process. And we need a little bit of retraining to help get that back. And you mentioned pregnancy and childbirth can be a trigger triggers for the maybe disactivation of this natural physiological process. Are there other factors that we should be thinking about clinically that could impair that pelvic floor activation? Yeah, there's many. So pregnancy and childbirth are known contributors. Constipation is another known contributor. Heavy coughing, so people who may be asthmatic or have emphysema, have smokers, coughing is a big contributor. Stress, trauma, diet, lifestyle. I could go on and on, actually. There's so many different things (laughs) that can influence our pelvic floor and not necessarily always meaning it's weakening the pelvic floor. I think that that's a bit of a misnomer where people 
think that if they have a symptom such as incontinence or pain or prolapse, that their pelvic floor must be weak and they associate weakness with laxity. But we can have an imbalance of the sort of activation and relaxation of that group of muscles. And if we are more hypertoned, so we are for holding on to more of the activation, then that's not necessarily going to be able to allow the pelvic floor to respond at the right time with the right amount of force. And same as if we have laxity, which can come sometimes from childbirth, from injuries, and that could then also interfere with the pelvic floor's capacity to respond at the right time with the right amount of force. So when this is happening, what are the symptoms that people are typically experiencing if we sort of move to the middle section of the matrix? Is incontinence a piece of the story here? Absolutely. So incontinence is one of the more common and there's different types of incontinence. So there's stress urinary incontinence, which is the most common. It's what we see the pad companies marketing to us for. So when we leak a little bit of urine with a laugh, cough, sneeze, jump, you know, pushing a heavy door open, standing up, urge incontinence where something triggers us and we have alarm bells in our bladder and we can't make it to the bathroom in time, we can have a combination of those two. And there can also be anal incontinence where gas or stool leak out. So that's kind of on the incontinence side. And then we also have organ support. That's another function of the pelvic floor muscles. And when we are lacking support or if there's been tissue injury, there can be a descent or bulging of the bladder, the uterus, and or the rectum into the vagina. Chronic back pain, actually, 95% of women with low back pain have some form of pelvic floor dysfunction, and that could be incontinence. It could be organ prolapse. It could also be pain. So painful sex or pelvic girdle pain can also be another kind of arm of pelvic floor dysfunction that's very common. And as a self-proclaimed vagina coach, are we talking about a situation that is more prevalent for the female population than the male population? Yes, absolutely. So people with female anatomy have a vagina that things can bulge or descend into. There's another organ, so the uterus, and also the people with female anatomy can become pregnant, carry babies, birth babies, whether it's vaginal or cesarean. and that increases the risk. So people with male anatomy do have a pelvic floor as well. Their shape, the pelvis shape itself, the bony structures is narrower, a little bit higher. They don't go through the hormonal fluctuations that we do with menstruation, with menopause, with pregnancy and childbirth. They don't give birth. So you take a bunch of those risk factors out and also couple it with not having an opening of a vagina and not having the structure of the female pelvis. And that definitely decreases the risk for males. Yeah. I will link to a podcast on the male pelvic floor in the show notes, along with some other links to related podcasts. But when we're talking about Kegels, and do you prefer Kegels or Kegels? Is there a way that you know that? You know what? When I first started talking about them, I would say Kegel and I've just sort of transitioned to Kegel. I, it doesn't really matter. If you Google it, it kind of gives you a like a Kegel. Like it's like a blend. <laughs> so I don't know. <laughs> so let's talk more about what it actually means, what that exercise is like, and how we do it. If there are any contraindications, people who shouldn't be doing Kegels, now I'll take your lead there. Let's just talk more about the exercise itself. Sure. So the challenge with Kegels is that we have never really been taught how to do them. And we've had this, you know, passed down people, usually once we reach pregnancy or childbirth, 
people will say, oh, make sure you do your Kegels, or we might have heard it from a care provider, or maybe we've been given a brochure, but we've never truly been taught or had an evaluation of our pelvic floor for most people, and that means that research even confirms most people do them incorrectly, and it's not their fault. We know that just being handed a brochure or being verbally told to do them is not helpful. The way we can teach ourselves is with imagery and visualization. So I use a lot of different cues to help people access this group of muscles that we can't see. We can't go stand in front of a mirror, you know, and flex our pelvic floor muscles. And there are several muscles. It's not just one. So accessing that part of the body, which can also be associated with shame or embarrassment or trauma for some people, it's very common to have a disconnect. So that's one way. We can also use biofeedback, which our own fingers are great biofeedback. If we have a partner, their fingers, if it's a male partner, their penis, there's also technology biofeedback such as the LV or the PeriFit. So those are all options. But my gold standard would be to see a pelvic floor physical therapist, especially if you have money to invest in a pelvic floor device, I would put your money in a pelvic floor physical therapist first. And they, in my opinion, are the gold standard in terms of learning and also having your pelvic floor evaluated so then you know what aspect of a Kegel to focus on. So there's a voluntary activation which involves a bit of a closure. So if we think about the three openings, the urethra, the vagina, the anus, the pelvic floor plays a role in closing those openings off when we don't want things to come out. And if we think about sort of the first part of a Kegel is like a closure or a gathering or a drawing together, And then there's a bit of a lift as well. So we have to remember that part of the function of the pelvic floor is supporting organs. And there's a lift action that we want the pelvic floor to do as well. So it's not, you know, a huge lift, but a gentle drawing upwards motion and then a release. So visualizations, one of the most common is people thinking about picking up a blueberry with their vagina and their anus. You could also incorporate the urethra in there as well, all three openings. Some people just think of the anus, some people just think of the vagina, some people just think of the urethra. We ideally want them all to work globally. Some people think of sipping a smoothie through a straw. You could think about jellyfish. So the exhale is where the jellyfish is, or sort of the activation is where the jellyfish is propelling up to the surface of the ocean. And then we need to think about the relaxation. So putting the blueberries back down, letting go of that straw that we were sipping our smoothie through, or the jellyfish softly floating and not propelling itself up with those edges coming together. And again, if we had our fingers inside, we could feel when we're visualizing that pick up a blueberry or sip a smoothie, can I feel a gentle hug and sort of draw up motion around my fingers? And then can I feel like that I let go? Can I let go of that hug? Some people will say, well, I don't feel anything happening. And that doesn't mean that the pelvic floor isn't working. It could mean that there's a lack of strength. It could also mean that there's muscles that are already partially contracted. So there's not much more contraction availability left, which means you won't really feel much change. Knowing kind of where your pelvic floor defaults to is important and can understand why we might have symptoms. So even if we have overactivity, we can still leak urine. If we have overactivity, we can still have lack of support for the organs. And it's actually also common for people who do leak or have urges, or have prolapse to become, maybe they didn't start there, but to become overactive or hypertonic because they're now guarded. They're afraid they're going to leak. They're afraid of something falling out. Yeah, that makes sense. And as we're visualizing, is there a starting time that we'd be recommending to our clients and patients, meaning 
like try this a few times a day or for three minutes? Is there anything we'd be thinking about there? So I go a little kind of past research, I guess. So research would say we have evidence that Kegels do work when they are done correctly, when they are done consistently, and research says three sets of 10, 10 second holds done three times a day. And there are some people in the world who will conform to that, but not very many. (laughs) And part of what makes them successful is if you do them and do them correctly. And I also feel like we miss the mark a little bit because at the end of the day, we need the pelvic floor to respond during times of movement, not just while we are sitting in a chair or laying down on our bed. So to incorporate Kegels into whole body movement, that's what I consider my gold standard. And initially I have people, first of all, pay attention to their posture because the way that the pelvis lines up with our rib cage is really important. The diaphragm and the pelvic floor work synergistically. So we need to optimize that through our posture and our alignment. Then we need to understand the relationship of the diaphragm with the pelvic floor as we are doing that activation and relaxation. So we would inhale and we would be putting our blueberries down and we would exhale and we would pick the blueberries up. So inhales are releasing, exhales are the activation sort of drawing in and up. And then once we have patterned that, once people have a good understanding and and are feeling connected to that, then we start to layer it into movement. So rather than the three sets of 10, 10 second holds, I might start there and have people do, you know, a set of 10 once or twice a day. But once we've patterned that, then it's like, let's get it into movement. And that not only helps strengthen and improve endurance of the pelvic floor, but it also helps retrain the timing element. So we need the pelvic floor to respond at the right time with the right amount of force, dependent on whatever the task is that we are doing. And by just doing three sets of 10, 10 second holds, we're missing that timing piece. And when we coordinate it into movement, we repattern or retrain the timing element while we are also working on strength and endurance. And when you say movement, do you mean any movement, yoga, hiking, walking, HIIT training, any movement? Yeah. So take out the, you know, walking, hiking, cardio type movement. It's pretty much impossible and not very functional (laughs) to do it. But movements like, yes, it could be yoga. It could be Pilates, strength training. So I usually would start out with something simple like a pelvic tilt and a bridge or a clam and then get into squats and lunges and then, you know, push-ups and even bicep curls really. But then we also want to get more plyometric. So jump squat type movements. And all of that starts to train. So people who say leak when they're running, and sometimes it's, you know, I leak at 5K, then we'll have them run in their symptom-free zone while we are working on retraining that timing and the strength and the endurance and the capacity of the pelvic floor to respond to more impact-type movements. So I would come back and look at like patterning other things like a running man or a single leg hop or jogging on the spot for a certain amount of time. Again, I'm not going to add Kegels to jogging on the spot, but to the running man, I would initially. And then eventually we want to get to the point where the pelvic floor is back to responding at the right time with the right amount of force. And then we can progress back past those plateaus that might be holding us back. That's super helpful. Earlier, Kim, you mentioned that nutrition could be a trigger. Is that in relation to inflammation and how that impacts the pelvic floor activation? That's one piece of it. So inflammation can play a role in potentially constipation or 
bladder, sometimes people have bladder pain. Interstitial cystitis is often related to high levels of inflammation, but it could also be our hydration levels. So maybe we're not drinking enough because we're afraid we're going to leak or because we're afraid we're going to have strong urges. So I think, well, if I don't have any liquid in me, I won't have that. But the urine then becomes more concentrated and will signal more strongly and more often and can start to perpetuate frequency, so frequently voiding. It could also mean if we're not drinking enough water, then we become constipated. And constipation can also create symptoms of bladder urgency. And so there's lots of different facets there with regards to what we're eating. We really want to make sure we have good quality poops because that means that we're not going to be straining. It means that we won't have bladder urgency. And then also that means we're well hydrated and that means that we're probably have a happier bladder as well. And also our gut health is important. If we have lots of inflammation and irritation, we might be bloated a lot of times. And when we have bloating, that can create some inhibition in that kind of core unit. So I mentioned the pelvic floor being the foundation, the diaphragm being kind of the top of the core canister, the deep abdominals, the transversus would be the front, and then the multifidus would be the back. And that I call it the core four. So when we have bloating or gut distension, that can create some disruption to that core synergy as well. Yeah, nice to see the connections there. The mantra of the podcast is everything is connected. We are all unique and all (laughs) things matter and poop is a non-negotiable. So I love that you're (laughs) highlighting the importance of, you know, just knowing our poop too and practitioners asking questions about that. I want to ask you about sex and the kegels. Are there connections there that people are making or that you're recommending or advising in relation to our sexuality and kegels, kegels, kegels? Kegel, kegel, yep. So the pelvic floor has a function of contributing to our sexual response. And if we have muscles that are lacking in tone or are hypertone that could interfere with our capacity to experience pleasure and sensation, orgasm, even accommodate something being inserted. So people will often say, well, if sex isn't satisfying, then you need to do more Kegels. And possibly we can play a role there. But again, understanding the status, the default of your pelvic floor is really important. And understanding, do you tend to be more on the hypertone side or the underactive side. And then you can use your pelvic floor. I actually call Kegels the core breath a lot of times because pelvic floor is the foundation of the core. It works in relation to the diaphragm. Inhales are where we relax the pelvic floor. Exhales are where we activate. So if you need to work more on the activation, then we will use those visualizations and those cues and really focus on kind of harnessing the exhales. If relaxation is something that you need more of, we'll really harness the inhales. And With regards to sex, whether that's with or without a partner, sometimes doing some core breathing ahead of time can help get the pelvic floor either more relaxed or more accommodating, so to speak. Some people find that when they do Kegels, actually there's an element of arousal that can happen. And if there's somebody who is participating in sex by themselves, so self-pleasure, whether it's with a device or not, you can use that as part of your Kegel practice. And either if, you know, if it was with a, say a vibrating device, vibrating and adding on some contractions, some Kegel contractions and relaxation can help improve recruitment of muscle fibers, stimulate more blood flow and circulation, which can then again, heighten potentially the capacity for orgasm. And some will talk about their 
orgasms being even stronger once they have a good balance between the pelvic floor muscles. So I will say kind of yin, yang, yoni, like a, we want to have the balance of the effort and the ease. Yeah. So well explained. Is there anybody who shouldn't be doing Kegels? I know sometimes people talk about with interstitial cystitis, not engaging in Kegels. What's your perspective on that in practice and in the research? Mm-hmm. So, and I was one of these people as well too, where initially this is, you know, many years ago, it was thought that, well, not everyone should do Kegels. And especially if you are overactive or hypertonic, don't do Kegels. And I agreed with that for a while. And then after, the more I kind of talked about it and the more I thought about it and even a piece of research was interesting to me was like, I don't feel like we should eliminate it completely just because you may default or kind of ear towards the side of overactivity. I think we benefit from movement and I think we benefit again from bringing it into whole body. And there was a piece of research that showed that people who performed a max contraction, so imagining doing the hardest, biggest squeeze Kegel of their life, it actually elicited a greater relaxation response. And so my teaching is if somebody is known, if they've maybe been told they have an overactive pelvic floor, if they have symptoms that are telling me that they may have overactivity, so painful sex, low back pain, pelvic girdle pain, constipation, incontinence, then I would still teach them the core breath, but I would have them say in a series of 10 breaths, I would have them focus only two or maybe three of those where they would add the activation and the others, you know, seven or eight breaths, so to speak, would just be inhale and think about relaxing. I always think of blossoming the vulva, blossom the butt cheeks, imagine all the points of attachment, the pubic joint, tailbone, and two sit bones spreading away from one another on the inhale, and then just exhale and keep that space open. So I would have them do that for a while, and then I would add on another, you know, make it four activations, and then five act, And then eventually, they're going through 10 full repetitions of the normal, quote-unquote, Kegel, but they're still benefiting from taking the muscles through their full range of motion. And they understand that sometimes it takes a contraction to get a relaxation response. And for some people, maybe even two or three of those, they're doing a max, thinking about a, like the max effort to see if that will elicit a greater relaxation response. And then one final thing I'll say on that is there's another pelvic floor exercise technique called hypopressives. It's also called low pressure fitness. And it is a good complement to a Kegel practice. And it is really powerful in terms of normalizing tone. So people who are still having, you know, kind of defaulting to that overactivity, when they add in the hypopressive practice, it can be kind of that turning point that allows their pelvic floor to finally start to come back to baseline where they aren't so prone to that overactivity. Kim, I'm so grateful for having this deep dive with you into the topic. As a final question, I'm just wondering, is there anything we didn't discuss that you just wish you could shout from the rooftops to all practitioners who are working (laughs) with women? Yeah, I think my big message is the one thing that I say with every talk I do or presentation or podcast episode is... I believe that all of us would benefit from seeing a pelvic floor physical therapist once a year. I think that just like we have been conditioned to 
take care of our teeth and see a dentist once or twice a year, I think we deserve the same PR for our pelvic floor. So my recommendation to practitioners is to align with pelvic floor physical therapists in your neighborhood, in your community, and introduce yourselves because I believe health, not just pelvic health, but our overall health, it does truly take a village and specific to our pelvic floor, it really takes a village as well. So the more we can cross kind of pollinate our areas of expertise, I think it just better serves our patients and our clients. Bravo. Such an important message. Thank you so much for joining us today, Kim. You're welcome. Thanks so much for having me. The 15-Minute Matrix is hosted and produced by me, Andrea Nakayama, and the Functional Nutrition Alliance. The podcast is edited and mixed by Brian Paik of Pacific Audio, and special thanks go out to Alia Hale, Pamela Geismar, Sandra Brower, Evan Hollingsworth, Heidi Kaufman-Lakowitz, and Rowan Bradley for their support making the 15-Minute Matrix possible. You can find episodes on all kinds of topics with more incredible guests at our podcast website, 15minutematrix.com, or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you'd like to see the completed functional nutrition matrix that accompanies today's or any episode, be sure to head over to the podcast website. Again, that's 15minutematrix.com. We love when you share our episodes with your friends and colleagues, leave a review and rate the show. That helps us to grow our collective message that functional nutrition is the future of healthcare. Also, be sure to follow us on Instagram at Functional Nutrition Alliance, and you can follow me at Andrea Nakayama. And if you or someone you know is interested in becoming a functional nutrition counselor, head over to fxnutrition.com to learn more about our Full Body Systems program. Full Body Systems is our 10-month immersion course where you'll learn the systems-based approach to addressing the root causes of your client's issues through client education, diet, and lifestyle modification. Again, you can always learn more at fxnutrition.com.